the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Hello to you. Welcome. Great to have you with us here on this Tuesday. It is the uh, 15th day of February, a belated happy Valentine's Day to you. Hope you had a nice day and delighted you've joined us on another edition of Lifeline. Lots to talk about today. The market's rebounding up almost 400 points today on word that it seems that some tensions between Ukraine and Russia are beginning to ease. But what exactly does that mean? And after the mantra, no more foreign entanglements, let us up to World War II, we, of course, have spent the ensuing 80 years very entangled in a foreign fashion. Is it time to revisit that policy? Has it really served the U.S. and the world any good? We've asked lawyer and constitutional historian Bob Zadek to join us later on tonight to talk about that very topic. We'll get to that conversation later on in this evening's program. We, of course, have been very encouraged by consideration of the United States Supreme Court of a couple of key bills, specifically in Mississippi and Georgia, related to limitations on abortion. In fact, in the Texas case, uh, there's been more than a 60% drop in abortion on demand over the last many months. That's all encouraging news, but at least we think that America's kind of unique in this arena and that uh, uh, we kind of led the charge in 1973 legalizing abortion and that we're, uh, we're kind of a, alone in this. Au contraire. There are many nations in the developed world that uh, continue to struggle with this topic, continue to struggle trying to decide not only when does life begin, but the value of life. And one such country is the United Kingdom. We get a look at a, a battle ensuing there as we're joined by constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Counselor, is always good to spend some time with you. This is, uh, this is a case overseas, but I think an important one because I can very readily see something like this being argued right here in the United States. It has to do with the, the so-called uh, um, abortifacient or the morning-after pill and yeah. um, the debate over whether or not a woman who initially decides she wants an abortion but then changes her mind, which all too often happens, and what happens if a doctor comes along and says, okay, there's a pill for that too. We can actually reverse the damage that the abortion pill can create. And this is really what this case seems to pivot on, the, pivot on, the argument as to whether or not a physician can actually do that. And to no surprise... 
an abortion provider, undoubtedly with a financial interest in all of this, is is arguing that no, a doctor should not be able to engage in providing medication to reverse the so-called morning-after pill. Tell us more. What's going on here? Yeah, these abortion clinics, first off, are not pro-choice. <laughs> if they were pro-choice, then they wouldn't be uh, bringing this, this, these actions against this Christian doctor in the U.K., uh, where uh, a court has already ruled uh, that he is he cannot uh, provide a an abortion reversal pill uh, after a woman has already taken the first abortifacient. Uh, there's two pills. So after the woman takes the first abortifacient pill, uh, then they, they need to take the second one to to fully completely uh, do the abortion to kill the preborn. But many women, though, after they take the first pill. Um, have regrets. Their conscience is, uh, you know, is bothering them, and they feel convicted, like they don't want to do it. Well, doctors like this Christian doctor uh, can make available and provide them an abortion reversal pill that will counter the first pill and save the life of the preborn baby. I, Craig, countless numbers have already had their lives saved here in the United States by such physicians. But here's the rub. So the lower court uh, ruled that he cannot do that. Uh, he has to, uh, he cannot provide any relief for the woman to be able to save her baby uh, at all. Uh, even if the woman wants the, the abortion reversal pill, he wants to provide it. They say, no, you cannot. So the case is now on appeal to the, the high court in the U.K., and we're hoping that the high court uh, will see exactly how hideous this is in terms of the, the rights of, of women, uh, the conscience, and the ethical oaths, oaths of, of doctors, and particularly those who want to abide by their sincere Christian beliefs as a physician. Why does it seem as if in the middle of this conversation we made a hard-turned left and went from, well, it's all about a woman's right to choose, after all, which is, of course, the the perennial argument made by pro-abortionists, and then suddenly they're going to force the medical community, a judge will force their will on a woman and say, well... You've started the process, so you're just going to have to finish it whether you like it or not. I, I, I would love to hear this argued in the United States because then I want to know, well, what happened to my body, my choice? I mean, how does this suddenly take such a hard turn left? Uh, yeah, it, it's extremely disturbing. I, I can see maybe, you know, uh, Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, having that kind of twisted, you know, thinking. Uh, but I think here, you know, in the United States, I think probably eight to one, the Supreme Court justice would say, you know, of course a doctor can provide this medical uh, procedure, this, this medication to reverse an abortion that a woman changed her mind that she doesn't want to have. Um, but it just shows you, though, how extreme things are and, uh, and where our courts could be going um, as we move ahead, even here in the United States, as there will be a, a replacement for Justice Breyer uh, later this year. So, um, this uh, this is a uh, this is how extreme the pro uh, killing of babies is, and it also is very revealing as to the intentions of uh, quote unquote pro choice uh, abortion mills and what they're really after, which is to push 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 for abortions and uh, really um, have showed a total disregard for any bona fide efforts in any way uh, to help women make uh, or help them resolve uh, pro life 
uh, resolutions. Well, and and not just that, but counselor, I would imagine that this also can set some potentially very dangerous precedent in terms of okay, if the court come in and say, well, once you've started the process, you're obligated to follow through without regard to a woman's will, without regard to whether or not that process, as it can in this case, be successfully reversed, I mean, how far of a reach is it to think that, well, someday they could say, well, if you've signed up to have your doctor-assisted suicide, um, you know, once you sign on the dotted line, that's it. There's no going back. You you can't have remorse. You you can't have a second thought on it later on. You're just going to have to go through with the procedure. I mean, I know that sounds terribly Orwellian, but it just seems to me like the next next natural step in this, you know, progression into utter disregard for human life. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, because that is a very close parallel, actually, uh, to what we're talking about, uh, is, you know, the government uh, not allowing people to change their mind to make a pro-life decision, either for themselves in that example, or in this case, for the for the pre-born. Um, this is extremely alarming, especially in view of the fact that doctors, the part of the Hippocratic Oath, is to save life, um, not to ensure death, um, especially against those who do not want to die or who do not want to kill someone else, like the pre-born. So uh, this is definitely worth watching. I, Craig, am optimistic, especially with the world watching this case, that the High Court there in the U.K. is going to do the right thing. Uh, I just hope that part of their decision is recognizing the religious freedoms and conscience rights of, of the doctor and doctors like him in other circumstances to follow. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that he had served as the um, the former president of the Catholic Medical Association. You would expect that they would, knowing that, say, well, uh, the man clearly has some very strong moral and religious objections here. And and oddly enough, the patient involved in this case uh, is very upset that the, that it's been brought almost in an effort to try and, and manipulate her in favor of, you know, again, pre- preventing her from making up her own, uh, her own mind. I mean, it just, it, this is troubling right. on so many levels, it's not even funny. Yeah, you're right. And it's something that can very easily can be the next digression here in the United States. Uh, fortunately, we've got some great justices put on the Supreme Court the last few years, and we have many states that are making great strides for protecting the preborn. So uh, let's just hope that we stay on this, uh, this present pattern here in the United States in view of these uh, unfortunate uh, situations that we're watching in places like the United Kingdom. Yeah, and uh, 65 million babies later, uh, not a moment too soon, I might add. Brad Dake is constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. You can find them online at pacificjustice.org. Not only do they give you some insights on many of these cases that are of interest to, to all of us, the people of, of conscience and people of faith, but also if you ever run into a situation where you feel as if your rights as an American, your rights as a person of faith, um, are being trampled upon, if not downright trashed. Pacific Justice Institute stands to provide legal services completely pro bono. That's the fancy attorney ease for free. And uh, and they do so to protect your constitutional and God-given rights. So you can find them on the web at pacificjustice.org. And there's Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer 
and the founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. 516 on the clock. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, even as we saw a uptick on Wall Street today, about a 400-point jump in response to an easing of tensions between Ukraine and Russia, the United States continuing a bit of, uh, shall we say, diplomatic meddling. We're going to be tossing Ukraine an economic lifeline, so they're calling it, according to Secretary of State Anthony Bilkin, he announced um, late yesterday that the administration is going to be offering Ukraine a $1 billion loan guarantee. The money allegedly will help strengthen Ukraine's economy against what's called Russia's unstabilizing behavior. It's interesting. If you turn back the clock, in the late 1930s, the cry then was no more foreign entanglements. Then along came the Japanese attack of Pearl Harbor, and we've spent the next 80 years doing just that, very much foreign entangled. The cry had been America first over the last four years, but I'm wondering now if perhaps it also should have been America MYOB, meaning mind your own business. China, of course, has been characterized as a threat, Russia too, but which is the more serious threat, truly? And which has the most to lose should military conflict break out between the United States and insert country's name here? Well, to gain some insights, we're joined today by best-selling author, syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. Bob, as I say, is both a author, a lawyer, CPA, constitutional historian, and the host of America's longest-running libertarian talk show, The Bob Zadek Show, Heard every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Bob, as always, great to have you with us. Um, You know, it's been often said that, well, America, it's sort of the world's police, and we help to maintain order and things of this sort. And and maybe that sounds good if, if a country had a resume. Maybe something like that sounds good. But I have to really truly wonder, and I think it's a very valid question, especially as we watch the saber-rattling going on right now, whether or not this sort of engagement policy has really served us and the world well or perhaps done more harm than good. Well, uh, served us well, saber-rattling. Well, first of all, it's not saber-rattling. It's nuclear missile rattling, mm. which... Good point. Uh, um, and I will point out that Samuel Johnson, in or around 1723, observed that nothing focuses the mind better than a good hanging. Um, well, nothing, to borrow from Samuel Johnson, nothing focuses the mind like a threatened missile attack. So... Never mind the saber-rattling. Those days are over. If it was saber-rattling, you and I would be talking about it. Um, so it's not saber-rattling, but with that somewhat snide response to your comment, uh, now the question is, how do we understand, how do we, the voting, we being the voting public, how do we take a position on whether those who represent us in Washington, how do we take a position and decide if they are serving us or not, if they are doing the right thing or not? Well, 
there's an interesting parallel. Let's look at the world from Russia's standpoint. Russia and the Ukraine share a border. They're close to each other. Ukraine desperately wants to join NATO, although NATO has made it clear that, well, Ukraine, come back when you're a grown-up. You're right now, you're a corrupt, dysfunctional country, and your economy is in the toilet, um, and you're not quite, you don't quite uh, pass the test for admission. But uh, there's always the threat. And Russia says, okay, uh, NATO might someday invite Ukraine to be a member of NATO. And Russia says, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that NATO countries uh, have a common uh, treaty, an attack against one is an attack against all. It means uh, NATO countries allow other countries in NATO to keep their missiles there. We had missiles in Turkey during the Korean, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's what caused the crisis. We have missiles in Germany. We have missiles all over the place in our NATO friends. And Russia says, if the Ukraine joins NATO, there's going to be all kinds of NATO armaments on our border. And then they and Russia says. That doesn't make us feel all that comfortable. So we want NATO to announce that Ukraine is not welcome in NATO and never will be. Now, let's assume that's what Russia has in mind. Isn't that identical to what Kennedy did during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Kennedy put a blockade on a country, Cuba, which was not at war with us for the sole reason that Cuba, an independent, sovereign country, had the temerity to permit Russia to put missiles in its borders, which Cuba is allowed to do. But the U.S., through Kennedy, said, you know, it makes us uncomfortable. So Cuba is part of our sphere of influence, that is, it's really close, 90 miles from Miami, from Florida. So, Russia, we don't want your missiles in Cuba. It's just too close. It makes us uncomfortable. So, if we assume that Russia's goal is to keep an unfriendly country's armaments far away, Russia is doing to the Ukraine exactly what we did to Cuba. We put a blockade, and we said, okay, food can get through, but not missiles. And we searched all the ships. By what right did we do that? Well, we did it because Kennedy felt uncomfortable. So isn't Russia doing with the Ukraine what we did with Cuba? And if so... How do you explain the difference? And is Russia right? So the point is, I am not on your show to carry water for Russia and to say they are right. I am simply inviting our audience to understand the issue. It's not just 
that it's Russian. There are principles involved, and it would be nice to make sure we didn't take a position as a country that is hypocritical. Also, we have no defense treaty with the Ukraine. Why do we care? Now, of course, the world cares. The world doesn't want one country crossing another country's borders. But uh, when I- Iraq crossed into Kuwait, the U.N. didn't care. The world didn't care. Only the U.S. cared. So when Saddam crossed into Kuwait, the world wasn't in a dither. Only we cared because we had, for reasons in the Bush White House, Bush White House was itching to pick a fight with Saddam Hussein at that time. So it's more, it's infinitely more complicated than the U.S. versus Russia. And just to sort of finish up, what is there exactly that makes Russia our enemy? We're long since the days that Khrushchev took off his shoe and pounded it in the U.N. and said publicly to the U.S., we will bury you. Russia isn't saying that. Russia hasn't threatened us with anything. Not that we should change our policy, but I'm having trouble figuring out how we even figure out who our enemies are and what makes them our enemy. There you go, Craig. Your turn with the microphone. Well, I, I think you've, you've helped to establish the, uh, the topic at hand here quite nicely, Robert, because at the end of the day, we often think very single-mindedly, meaning we believe that we have a right to a sense of safety and security. That certainly was the motivating factor, at least what we were told publicly during the Cuban Missile Crisis, that the presence of Soviet missiles 90 miles off the U.S. coast made us feel uncomfortable. And maybe we need to rethink the notion that, you know, we're not the only ones concerned about safety and security. And if you look at the the historical reasons for the establishment of NATO back in the late 40s, essentially to, to try and draw the proverbial line in the sand, or in Eastern Europe in this case, to dissuade Russia from any advancement further west, um, you have to wonder, well, if the purpose of the organization is to basically... Um, deal, quote-unquote, with Russia, how does Russia feel when we have repeatedly, since the Cold War, added additional countries into the NATO group? We, I believe, uh, one of our secretaries of state, um, with the reunification of Germany, had promised, no, we're, we're, we're not going to ask for anybody else to be added into NATO, and then all of a sudden we're adding more, adding more, adding more. And I got to wonder why it is we seem to think that we don't think this should be viewed as a threat, but we don't allow Russia to view any of this as a threat. It it seems to be terribly um, short-sighted in that regard, as if to somehow suggest that the only one here that has a dog in this fight to worry about anything is the United States. Well, that, of course, was an issue uh, that Trump, I'm no fan of Trump, but Trump was ridiculed for when he insisted that Western Europe uh, pony up a little more of the cost of their own defense. And while there's lots about Trump's policy that can legitimately be challenged, in that policy, 
it's hard to make a case that he was far off the mark. So putting aside, and by the way, on the subject of NATO, which is integrally involved, NATO is a defense treaty. And I, I, and NATO was formed as a buffer against the USSR after World War II, because USSR was at that time openly uh, uh, in a Cold War and was clearly had its sights on conquer. There's no indication at all that Russia, or China for that matter, have as a matter of their foreign policy conquering anybody. I don't think either of those huge countries want more land or more people. They got plenty of both. If anything, they want to have sovereignty over their population, and they would love to grow economically, uh, as does every other country. But there's no, there's no real indication, not by any overt act, that geographic conquest is a goal. It would be a foolhardy goal. The next war will not be fought over land and over gaining population under your control. It'll be fought for economic power. And the tools are cyber and um, foreign and trade policy, uh, stealing IP and the like. Those are the tools and political disruption within a country. But the tools are not going to be weapons that kill people because those days are over. There's nobody who wants to notch up killing as much of the enemy as possible. That's never anybody's, any country's goal anymore, as best one can tell. Now, for sure, there are people who want to kill other people, but as a matter of foreign policy, there's no indication of that. Uh, now, maybe it's in secret, but certainly there's nothing that you and I read about that indicates you and I are, in, are under any threat of losing our lives by invasion of a foreign country. And I have to agree with you on that point, but but, but I want to pose a question, and we can all ponder this through the break, and then when we come back uh, after a brief timeout, we're going to ask syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek to shed some light on a potential part of the equation here. And I have to agree that, you know, the, the, the terms of engagement here are beginning to change and change Radically, And the old-fashioned, your army goes up against mine. We send out a bunch of foot soldiers and tanks and blow each other up. And whoever winds up with more survivors is declared the winner. That, that, that probably is uh, becoming quickly an antiquated viewpoint on war, much as my notion is saber-rattling, when it's more like warhead or nuclear warhead rattling. That said, there may be one area of interest where... Maintaining hostilities would be of value, not necessarily to the benefit of our country or any other. But I have to hearken back to the now famous 
a speech given by Ike Eisenhower, who after uh, years as a military genius and, and arguably helped leading America to victory, certainly with D-Day and the Allied invasion of the European continent and the end of the war in Europe, and then eight years as president of the United States, when he finished his tenure in the White House, as he was departing, he offered a goodbye speech. That goodbye speech was riddled with uh, his experience, both as president and as a general, and he laid out some insights and offered a warning, a warning related to the growing influence of what he called the military-industrial complex that has a very vested interest in wars and keeping wars going because there's a lot about an army that it needs to survive in a sense or it needs to justify its existence. And certainly in terms of, well, in terms of making money, you got to sell warheads, but if you stockpile them and nobody ever uses them, soon you won't be selling anymore. But if you can encourage said military that is the purchaser of said warheads to continue to use them, then they will need more and you will continue to produce more and therefore make more. See where I'm going with this? We'll get Bob's take on it. Bob Zadek with us today. Go to bobzadek.com to subscribe to Bob's podcast and he also offers now a libertarian book club, which gives you access to cliff notes and summaries not only of his guests and popular libertarian and conservative titles and themes, but of course then too you can get information about book authors along with Bob's own books and check out his program Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock on 860 AM, The Answer here in the San Francisco Bay Area and syndicated all up and down the West Coast. More details again at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. So if it's not in the best interest of Russia to get involved in a war and not in the best interest of the United States to get involved in war, is there anybody here that might benefit from it? (laughs) And we'll continue to ponder that question as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There has long, at least um, since World War II, been this notion that America needs to be engaged that we kind of serve as the, uh, I don't know, the peacekeepers around the globe, and that we have to do all to protect our interests. But sometimes we have to question whether or not it's the interests of America that are being protected, or uh, maybe not quite America, but some that benefit from those interests, particularly when it relates to keeping in business, whether you're running a military or selling the materials to keep the military running. With us today, best-selling author, syndicated talk show host, CPA, and constitutional historian, lawyer Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show. By the way, you can get more information about Bob's program as well as details related to his podcast and even subscribe to Bob's Libertarian Book Club, which will give you access to great cliff notes, summaries of popular conservative and libertarian titles. Just simply go to bobzadek.com for more information, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. What about this notion, Bob? Not just that we are somehow doing the the altruistic right thing by being uh, America's or the world, rather's peacekeeper, and yet oftentimes there's very little peace involved with any of this. And sadly, I sort of hear that speech by Ike Eisenhower echoing in the back of my mind. 
Can we really believe that when our politicians say we must stand, we must draw a line in the sand, we must not allow XYZ country a foot further, that we're really looking out after our own best interests or are there other agents that perhaps benefit more than the American populace? Well, uh, you packed a lot into that question um, in referencing Eisenhower's uh, threat from the military-industrial complex. That was the phrase he used. Um, uh, But you said um, in your question, uh, you mentioned furthering our self-interest or our best interests. I take issue even with the assumption. um, Who says that what we have adopted in our foreign policy is in our best interests? Craig, you know how anybody gets offended when uh, you get advice from somebody else to do something that you don't want to do, and you say, it's good for you, so do it, as if that statement proves its own point. Um, I question, uh, when you say our best interest, I would challenge anybody to... Define that. What is the standards by which an instrument of foreign policy is in our best interest? Wouldn't it be that any instrument of foreign policy that involves the use of force other than to repel an invader, that the use of force and therefore risking American blood and fortune cannot be in our best interests. Isn't that a reasonable place to start and put the presumption that any use of force is not in our best interests and the burden is on those who would advocate the use of force to prove otherwise by substantial evidence? And once you have that conversation what exactly is in our best interest, and what are the standards? Putting it a different way, uh, how much is a human life worth? And what, uh, what events happening far away justify the putting an American life in harm's way? I don't think anybody would feel really comfortable enunciating the basis by which we we threaten somebody else's somebody else's life, another American's life. So we could, if we if we had a lot more time, we could start with unpacking self-interest to begin with. And what does that even mean to me? It, the Defense Department, in that cabinet position, was called. Let's remember the Department of War. Yep from the founding of our country through around 1947, as as memory serves me. And then it was changed to the Department of Defense. I only wish the mission changed with the name change, but it didn't. It remained a Department of War, not a Department of Defense. And the linkage between the use of force and actual defense has long since been lost. It's almost archaic. And I would be perfectly content if we went back 
to uh, using armed forces for which they were created in 1787, which is defense. Use it to defend the country, but not as a way to export our belief. It's something like we're a modern-day crusades out there going into parts of the world where we shouldn't be in order to stop their way of life and impose our way of life upon them. It's nothing other than the Crusades modernized. Well, and the irony is, of course, oftentimes the argument is made, and uh, and Bush Bush, uh, 43 uh, used this... uh, uh, perhaps arguably not in a very fashionable or effective way, but nevertheless use the argument that we were somehow helping to export and defend and establish democracy and freedom for the entire world. If As if somehow that was our job, that was our national destiny. And, of course, the irony is I think it's a very valid question as to, okay, when we talk about actions being taken that are in, quote-unquote, the best interests of the United States, we often fail to define exactly what we mean by that. I don't know any common person on the street here in the San Francisco Bay Area that says, yeah, I'm really upset about the idea of of Russia having a presence in the Ukraine, and uh, I've called the president and told him, please send troops in because I've got an interest in this. I don't think anybody's ever said that. But I want to come back to my original question, Bob, and that is this. If we are a little bit perhaps more cautious in in asking the question related to how do we define best interest? Does much of this wind up pointing to not action that's in the best interest of America, but rather the best interest of the military-industrial complex? I mean, after all, they stand to gain the most, in a sense. Well, let's remember that... um they have, they being those profit-making corporations which uh, have an interest in selling military hardware and logistics and the like, they have an interest in us selling arms, and whether or not it's a motivation, they, uh, people not getting along is very good for their business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when let's remember that as recently as about one year ago, when we had the rioting surrounding Black Lives Matter and other disturbances, let's remember that gun sales around across the country went through the roof. Disturbances and um, unpeaceful uh, threats are really good for many businesses. Now, I am not. I say this profoundly, loudly. I am not advocating that um, any American is sitting around counting the dollars every time there's a war. I'm I'm not even suggesting that in the slightest. But the fact remains, as you pointed out, with your very leading but good question, as you pointed out, isn't it true that there are enterprises that benefit economically? Sure. Now, whether that means they go and advocate for 
foreign policy that causes unhappiness and that causes antagonism? I doubt it. Maybe I'm naive. I, but I don't. I don't need that assumption to to prove my starting point is we are far better off to the extent that we are not participant in these disturbances. We are much better off leading by example in terms of world behavior than we are imposing our worldview upon people who, whether out of ignorance or thoughtfulness, it doesn't matter, but for one reason or another, they reject what we believe in. Uh, I don't care whether they do it out of ignorance or whether they do it because they simply aren't believers. Bernie Sanders is a socialist. Uh, there's nothing wrong with Bernie Sanders. He is far and away uh, as far from my political and economic point of view as possible, but it doesn't mean he has to be attacked. His, he's, a, he's a threat, but a peaceful threat. I am not harmed by the fact that, in my opinion, he doesn't understand economics. I am not harmed by it, not directly, not enough to want to harm him. And uh, I, don't, I, I just don't think we are harmed to the extent that there are people living under despotism or under autocratic governments. We wish they were different, but should it be a matter of foreign policy and should it be something where we should risk our lives and our fortune? Well, no, because if there are people who could use our help, they're numbered in several billions and we can't afford to help them. So we're much better off setting an example and prospering and showing them by behavior and by standard of living, our way works. You want to adopt your way? Have at it. But you will learn our way works, and they will come around or not. Now, there's another issue here at hand, Bob, that I want to have you address before time runs out on us. Uh, and it's one that I think certainly on an increasing basis post 9-11, we've seen used as a pretext, a pretext for protecting American lives, giving us safety and security at home, controlling terrorism threats, et cetera, et cetera. And that is that there is uh, oftentimes multiple casualties in war. Human beings, sadly and most notably, the top on that list but we're learning more and more that another victim, so to speak, of warfare tends to be things like the truth and individual freedoms. And I've always find it a bit ironic when we're arguing that we're doing this because we're protecting our freedoms, all the while using it as political cover to erode our freedoms. That certainly has been the case, I think, with the so-called Patriot Act and many of the actions taken here in the United States post-9-11. That we know that threat exaggeration is the most useful and reliable tool of those who would govern us in order to get the population under control. Once people are afraid, they look for a savior. That is the theory of why autocrats in government survive. They create a fear, 
And then they say, now that you're good and afraid, I'm the guy who can, who can save you. And it's human nature. When you, when you feel that you cannot protect yourself, you look around for somebody to help you. And, and it builds dependency. And let, this is nothing new. Let's remember, we all have seen um, in our public school textbooks that very famous etching by Paul Revere of the so-called Boston Massacre. The Boston Massacre was just what we were talking about. The Boston Massacre were a group of cold, frightened British soldiers, soldiers, five of them, being attacked by an angry mob, and they fired into the mob, killing, I think, six people. Six people is not a massacre. But the founders realized they had a good one. They had something that can be pictured as a massacre, and they made the Bostonians more fearful of the British, and therefore they looked to the, the founders, the, the Bostonians, in control to help them and to foment, and to foment dissent. So this has been around forever. Create a fear and then wait for the line around the block of people asking you to protect them. So it's nothing new. It's just very effective. It always works. It worked with COVID. It worked with 9-11. It, it always works. And that is the primary tool in the toolbox of those who govern us. These kinds of important issues and others, the topic of discussion every Sunday morning, 8 a.m., on the Bob Zadek Show, we invite you to uh, tune in, get more information. By the way, if you go to Bob's website, bobzadek.com, that's B-O-B-Z-A-Z-A, doing it in English, Craig, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com, you can get information about Bob's podcast, subscribe there to the podcast, as well as details about Bob's Libertarian Book Club, which gives you access to Cliff Note summaries of popular libertarian and conservative titles. And again, we invite you to check out his program, Sunday. Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Bob is the answer to a lot of the sort of nonsensical Sunday morning talking heads dealing with poignant and important issues of the day. And, of course, he talks with the uh, political thinkers, newsmakers, and offers some great insights. The Bob Zadak Show, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock on 860 a.m., The Answer. More information on the line at Bob Zadak. Com. Thank you, Bob, for your time. 601 from KFAX. Let's get a look at uh, what's coming up next. <laughs> Streaming now on smart speakers and the Odyssey app. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.